when interest rates finally hit bottom, which they do in cycles, and start back up again over a long period of time, then the bull market's over and the bear market has begun. And last year, interest rates hit bottom, bottom, bottom. They hit. They were record lows, way below inflation. And we're back with more of the Personal Wealth Coach with Jake and Jeff McClure. And uh, we're we're joining our previously um, moving episode. Wait, no, we are the episode, so we have joined ourselves back live in the studio. No, we're not in a studio. We are in offices and garages. We're in, we're in cyberspace. Does that yes. make us episodic? I, I think so. This podcast is called The Personal Wealth Coach, and that's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm based in Salado, Texas. Now, the fact that it's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC approves or disapproves of anything, neither, neither does the secretary, whoever the secretary is, and this tape will destruct after it's listened to. You the dated yourself. This tape will destruct. Your podcast tape is about to self-destruct. That's why you can't find the tape in it anymore. <laughs> It already has self-destructed because it's too old. And uh, the information that we do present in this podcast, we get from sources we think are very reliable, but we don't make any guarantees as to the completeness or the accuracy of that reliability or anything else. We just do the best we can. The information that we're providing during this podcast is not considered investment advice. This information is educational because investment advice means that we know exactly who's listening and we can custom tailor all of our advice to them. So prepare to be educated. We got okay, a question. Am, yes, we did. Um, one question is from somebody that was asking about the newsletter, but it kind of ties into our Inquisitor John's uh, question on the 40-year bull market in bonds being over. We've been talking about that on the air and in our newsletter for a couple of weeks now, more than that, I guess a couple of months now. And the question is, from on one side, is uh, what's, what's going on with inflation? How is the supply chain mess uh, pushing this out over the next two years? Old infrastructure, aging equipment. That's all part of one question. And then the other question is, can you explain what happened in this bull market? And I'm combining those questions. For most people, that would be very strange. Why would you combine things about supply chain and about inflation with a bull market being over and bond? Bond bull market ending. Yes. And to be sure and sure throw bond in there each bond. time, otherwise people will panic. Oh, and yeah, the stock market's bull is ending. No, um, we're talking about the bull market in bonds. It's lasted for 40-plus years. Uh, as interest rates have fallen over the last 40 years, if you go back in time, uh, and we should play harp music here. I have to find the harp. There we go. Back in time. Going back in time to the late 1970s and early 1980s. That was the end of the bear market in bonds that had lasted about 40 years. And these things go in pretty normal cycles. The cycles are more like they're more based on generational experiences than on um, 
like a shorter term thing, like we would see a cycle in the stock market can be, you know, a typical cycle in the, in the stock market over the last 80 years is about two and a half years where you go from bull to, to, to bear, or at least correction back and forth. Well, the bond market hasn't experienced that. They are much smoother, which gives them the, the moniker of being low risk. But there are times when less bumpiness doesn't mean low risk. It means a lot of risk. It's just not a bumpy risk. It's an increasing smooth risk into the future. When interest rates are going up, if you have a whole bunch of money in bonds, your principal is going to go down unless you wait for maturity to receive your money back. And a lot of people tell me how many times you've seen this in the past. I don't know. I guess you're, you're, you're looking at uh, portfolios that don't, that aren't managed by us, not quite as often as I am, but I've seen in the last, Oh, two years or so, I've seen probably a dozen portfolios of people in their seventies with a lot of 30 year bonds in it. Um, what that means is that we're treating bonds as if they're just going to be sold on the secondary market because a 70-year-old with a 30-year bond has to wait that whole 30 years to get maturity. That's age 100 before you see your return of principal. Um, the secondary market has been there to say, hey, I'll buy that from you. Interest rates have dropped since the last time I looked, so I want to pay you more than what you paid. Well, now we're seeing the opposite of that. And that means that for the last 40 years, we've got a habit going that people are very used to. If we look back at the longer patterns in history, it's very normal historically for that to shift and to shock everyone where they go, what? Bonds have been safe for so long. How am I losing money? We believe that we're seeing that right now. And, and you've got some statistics that you quote regularly to back that up, I believe, of the bull market in bonds. I have to be clear on that. The, no, the end of the bull market in bonds was last year. Yeah. Not the peak. The peak was, goodness, long time ago. Well, wait a minute. Maybe, yeah, I guess it was the, the end of the bull market. So I guess that was the peak last year. Yeah. And there's a really good reason. We have a question. Why is it over? What, what happened to end this bull? Well, bull markets and bonds are generated by falling interest rates. It's that simple. That's all there is to it. I mean, bonds are incredibly complex, far more so than stocks. But as far as bull and bear markets and bonds, it's pretty clear. As long as interest rates are falling, the value of bonds in a portfolio will rise if you have a diversified portfolio. Now, it's also possible to lose money in a bull market in bonds by buying high-yield bonds or something in a company that folds up and lose your money. But when interest rates finally hit bottom, which they do in cycles, and start back up again over a long period of time, then the bull market's over and the bear market has begun. And last year, interest rates hit Bottom, bottom, bottom. They hit. They were record lows, way below inflation, uh, where it doesn't make any sense to own something that's paying less interest than than inflation is likely to be over the year over the age of the bottom. People were still buying. They were still flooding the market with money. Which, interestingly enough, as people flood the market with money and to buy bonds, that's what puts it causes the... interest rates to fall. Right. And yet they flooded it with more money, which is exactly what happens in the stock market, by the way. When the stock market gets overpriced and it's at the top of a bull market, people tend to flood money into the stock market, yeah. which brings it to an unfortunate conclusion. So early on when I was talking about the markets, the benchmark in the United States for interest rates and on bonds is the 10-year Treasury note. 
I just said it's up 71% this year. The, the, the yield is up 71%, which means that the principal has fallen this year, all year. Not 72%, but a lot. Yeah. And in and some cases, 50%. I've seen portfolio bond portfolios that are down significantly over the last year. It's just yep. scary looking. If you had a big, matter of fact, I, I looked at a mutual fund that, uh, that, that tries, does a pretty good job of tracking the, uh, the total bond market in the United States. And it's very, very low expenses. So it's a pretty good idea what's going on. And it's, if you were taking money out of that, if you're taking your uh, interest out of that, you would have lost about 5% this year so far, just being in that. And the Federal Reserve has clearly said, we're going to be raising interest rates and we're going to be stopping our stimulus or bond buying program. And as they stop buying bonds over the next year or so, that means there's less demand for bonds, which means the price of bonds will fall and the interest rates will go up, all other things being equal. Of course, anything can happen in the future, but that's it's the end of that bull market. Yeah. It's, it's already over. So, so kind of to lay this out and t- tie it in with we had another question on the supply chain mess and inflation and so on. Last year, we had a lot of extra money. And that is kind of universal, whether you lost your job or not. When we're looking at statistics, as long as you applied for money, most people had more money last year than in the year before that. Coming, incoming new money because of all the stimulus, because of all of that, to say, whoa, we got to prevent a a massive depression. And it's kind of hard to prove a negative, but we didn't have a massive depression, so it must have worked, right? Well, in that process, it introduced a huge amount of money that people could use as they saw fit, more money than they usually had except when they got their refunded tax time. Only it was spread out over a longer period of time as more money was coming into them. So they did what people usually do, particularly when they're limited on how much they can spend on their own comfort. They couldn't go out to eat, couldn't go to the movies, couldn't go to a sports game, couldn't go to a concert. So they flooded the markets with it. And in a lot of cases, it went into the bond market. Well, as things have been become more available to be used again, and the, the stimulus is not pumping quite as much money into the economy as it was. There's less money on hand because most of it's already either been socked away or, or something. And now prices are going up because people have extra money and it's harder to get the things that we used to get easily from supply chain issues and so on. So they're beginning to tap their cash that they put away in these low interest rate places and starting to pull that money out of the system. Just like when the Federal Reserve stops buying bonds, there's less money to buy bonds with. That seems very, very obvious. If less people are buying bonds, then less money is buying bonds. That means that that the interest rates have to get more competitive. Uh, it means that if you want a loan, you have less people offering you a loan. This is why mortgage rates are going up. There's less money being pumped into the loan market to add to loans. There's less money in the bond market. As that happens over time, as other prices go up, you've got to tap your reserves to spend a little bit more on something that costs more than it did. It pulls more money out of those markets, which causes interest rates to go up again. 
All of this sounds complicated, but as interest rates go up, it gets more expensive to get a loan, which causes people to spend less as long as the interest rates are going up faster than inflation. And I know that's a lot of variables and a lot of pieces, but if you think you've got a credit card that's going to charge you 5% when you swipe it or one that's going to charge you 29% when you swipe it, you're more likely to use the money at the low interest rate. Uh, and, and what that means is that you're less likely to use, use the money when interest rates goes up, go up, which means that a lot of the inflation that we're experiencing, the, the natural cycle competitiveness to that is interest rates will, will kind of organically go up. At some point, the Federal Reserve may step in and raise them higher if we still have too much money floating around in the system in a couple of years. And that's something that kind of ties into why the bull market in bonds is kind of stuttering to a stop at this point is we finally got to the point where it's really hard to imagine interest rates ever going below that. Now, ever is a crazy word, so let's strike that from the record. It's hard to imagine interest rates going below that. The question is uh, from Don. Don says, I may be misremembering the details, but I'm sure you'll get the point regardless. Back before the virus hit, uh, we could say hit Jeff, but uh, back before the virus hit, Jeff had mentioned based on long-term indications and the repetitious nature of 20 and 100-year societal behavior cycles, he must have listened to you to be saying societal behavior cycles, that he anticipated corrective downturn in the market around 2023 to 25. My question is how the virus troubles and some business not surviving surviving would affect that forecast. Are the recent troubles weeding out the poor business and so the correction will be smaller? Or is the current situation not affecting the expected correction since it's fairly unique? Actually, you are misremembering one of the details because we, not just Jeff, yeah. saw historical cycles and long-term leading indicators pointing to a cyclical downturn in 2022 and we got one now does that mean that long-term indicators in 22 yeah there we go 2021 22 not 23 through 25 does that mean that long and and the reason very simply is 100 years ago we had one and we we didn't i'd be the first to say i wish i had been smart enough to realize that so for some reason, pandemics come every hundred years. I don't know that they do, by the way. It just happened but, to this time. Uh, we had a pandemic a hundred years ago, too, and we're having a pandemic now, and we're having a market downturn. We, we just passed through a market downturn that pretty much mirrored the one that occurred in 2021. In 1921. In, in 1921 and 1922. Why we do those things in 100-year has been greatly debated by a lot of people, and it really boils down to the point, to the fact that there are forces at work in our socioeconomic system that are not easily explained, but they're clearly there. It's kind of like, we all know gravity exists, but I haven't seen it lately. Yeah, and Mark Twain says this really, really well. Uh, Old Samuel Clemens, he said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Samuel Langhorn Clemens. Yeah. Got to get that Langhorn in there. Uh, well, the, the concept here is that our behavior is still human. No, what? I know, it's strange that we have remained humankind since, since we started banging rocks together. 
uh, we are still motivated by the same things. If you doubt that, what is it that someone buys when they win the lottery? Well, they get shelter, a really nice shelter. They get really nice food and they get really nice clothes and really nice. These are all just very, I mean, this is the same stuff that if, if a, a man in medieval England got a bunch of money, somehow legitimately got a bunch of money, what would he improve first? Well, his, uh, his shelter and his clothes. We haven't changed that much. By that much, I mean we know different languages and we have different cultures and that does influence our behavior. Like we're eating different foods. We have different materials that we're building our houses with. But the reality is similar and we tend to live for relatively normal lifespans as our health gets better. So we're back to a time period in the Roman Empire where the life expectancy reached up into the late 60s and early 70s. And we can see these cycles happening back then in 100-year intervals, only it was really harder to track that. So there's a debate on whether it's just round numbers in the year. Is that what's causing these weird events? Uh, no, because they didn't have round numbers in the year in the old Roman calendar before Julius put it into place. They had based on what emperor was in power for how many years. It was very hard to keep calendars accurate at the time. But for some reason or another, we tend to do things in 10-year cycles. We have a base 10 numeric system. It has to, something to do with the number of our fingers, I think. I don't but know. I don't know if it has we, anything to do with that or not. It certainly has something well, to do with something. Well, there's, there's 10 and 100-year cycles in sociology that are very clear, that are very repetitive. As a matter of fact, you want to do something fascinating sometime, at least if you're a geek like us, fascinating. Go back and look and see when the major bear markets and recessions have occurred in the history of the United States, and you'll see that most of them, not all, it's not 100%, but it's very, very rare that we have a zero year where we don't have a bear market and a recession. It's extremely rare going back several hundred years. Why is that? Doggone it, I don't know, but I'd we love know. to know. It's kind of like dark matter and dark energy. Dark matter is composes 95 generates 95% of the gravity in the universe, but we have not got a clue what it is or how it works. We don't even know. Right now, even the term dark matter is still considered a hypothesis. We're just saying somehow gravity's getting made out there and we're going to call it dark matter. Yeah, and then there's dark energy, which accounts for most of the energy in the universe, and we don't know where that's coming from either. So there's a lot we don't know, especially about human behavior. What we can say, and we have to be careful using these patterns as predictors if we don't know why they occurred because the why could change and to give you a quick example this is one that's in elder baldy's book um it's an interesting name called the personal wealth coach it's still available on amazon did you know that mm -hmm. it's been what 20 years anyway it's it's a clear cycle between corn and hog and it worked corn corn being wheat and barley rather than the corn was a word for just grains like a, a, a peppercorn, uh, something small. And so pigs would get expensive and feed would get cheap because there were fewer pigs eating the feed. So fewer pigs mean more expensive pigs um, means cheaper feed. So if you're selling feed, you say, I want to get into pigs. Well, you start buying pigs and that causes the pig price to go up and everybody's getting out of the feed growing business to go buy pigs and that means the feed prices go up. 
Uh, so you see what's happening here. The, if everyone switches on a regular basis between one side and the other, you get this really cool repetitive cycle that's about three years long. That's the corn hog cycle. And it went all through history until we had the railroads and cows came into the mix. You need to understand why. So we can look at this behavioral issue until we have a good reason why that's the reason why it's happening. Um, we don't make big decisions based on it. We do prepare for it. How's that for weird? Yeah. It's really hard to take advantage of it if you don't know when, why, and how. Well, you got part of a win. So it's not as predictive as it looks, but we can base some common understanding. Why is it we got a, we could have said three years ago, we typically get a, a pandemic every hundred years. It's something I've studied. But it sounds like I'm predicting a pandemic. Well, I would have been like, well, I did it. I predicted the pandemic. Why? Because 100 years. Why is it 100 years? Do the viruses mutate every 100 years? No, we don't know. And that's, that's the deal. And then if you go back through the history of plagues, they didn't happen every 100 years. We just happened to have one hit in a normal economic cycle that looked like a repeat. But it's nice to point out. It's, it's kind of like the tides. We didn't understand the theory of relativity and gravity and all of that kind of stuff uh, when the first tide charts were made up. We understood that there was a relationship somehow between the position of the moon and the phase of the moon and the sun, and we noticed it was coincidental. We didn't know why, but we were able to predict that tides would rise and fall. Now, interestingly enough, the old tidal charts, before we understood gravity, before we understood the real cause behind the tides rising and falling, well, they weren't as accurate as they are today, and they didn't forecast high tides as, to be as high as they got sometimes, neat tides and things like that. Start. This is the Personal Wealth Coach, and if you'd like to talk to us Ta-da. off the air, we actually give fiduciary investment advice for people who are financially independent or working to get there, uh, or close to getting there. So uh, you can talk to us off the air, and that's generally the best way to get advice, uh, by calling us locally, voicemail on the weekends, real live people on the weekdays at 254-947-1111. And you can reach that number toll free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. Sign up for our newsletter there. Contact us through the contact form. Listen to our podcast. Listen to going the radio program going back a long ways or you can email us directly at jeff or jake at tpwc.com you got another question if you guys have time this is from chris can you talk about how interest rates rising will affect government borrowing international debt in the future is this a concern no Okay, anything else wait, you want to talk wait, about? Wait, wait, we're, did you say, no, we're not going to talk about it? That's perfect. No, we're no, no it's no, not. No, we're not going to. Oh, I thought, I thought, it was, oh. would you guys mind talking about it? We just said, no, we're not going to talk about it. Let me, it's, this is a sensitive subject. It is. Um, a lot of politics involved here. First off, the amount of money our government owes in bonds, notes, bills, et cetera, is small relative to its net worth. Yeah, right. we have a. We, we have a bigger debt relative GDP than we've had before, but, except for during World War II. But right. when we compare this, like 
against a, a private person when the bank is wishing mm -hmm. to give you a loan and your net worth is say $10 million and you, and they, and you want a $3.1 million loan. They go, Oh, I don't know. What's your income look like? Yeah. Your income's all right. As a percentage of payments going to be like, yeah, okay. I think you can do it. You got to remember to leave net worth in the equation. And you also, there's another factor here and it's a big one. It is so big that literally people don't talk about it. The largest single holder right now of U.S. debt, that's bills, bonds, and so on, U.S. Treasury borrowings, is the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve has the ability to go in and buy up that debt at a virtually unlimited rate. It could literally, if the Federal Reserve decided to do so, buy all the U.S. debt, which would be very disruptive to the world economy, and they would never do that, I don't think. So it isn't like you're borrowing money from the bank or borrowing money from a credit card that has to all be paid back. The Federal Reserve does not necessarily, could very easily say, we forgive your debt, and it would just go away. Now, are they going to do that? No, because again, it would disrupt the market. But here's the important thing to recognize. The danger in borrowing of the federal government borrowing money is it's when it borrows money, it spends that money. It puts it back into the economy. How efficiently it does it is beside the point. It puts the money back into the economy. If the federal government gets to the point where it's borrowing so much money that it's not collecting in taxes, that it begins to cause inflation, then you've got a problem. Is the federal government's borrowing causing the current round of inflation? No, there's no evidence of that happening whatsoever. What is causing inflation is the fact that there are supply constraints caused primarily secondary or tertiarily by COVID right now. And the Federal Reserve has the ability to control how much money is in circulation. And the rest of the world is sopping up the money we create at a very high rate of speed. They basically, we have a huge export. It's called the dollar. And it's not a matter of just us and them. It's a matter of, and we've talked about this before. Jake's talked about it. I've talked about it. An example, the second largest economy in the world, the Chinese, have a currency. The renminbi, are sometimes called the yuan. Yuan. It is basically backed by U.S. dollar-denominated securities, treasury securities. When the Chinese go to buy raw materials, and by the way, several times during this pandemic, they have been net importers instead of net exporters, as they used to be. They actually imported more value than they exported for several months in a row. They pay for that using dollars. They pay for that using all those dollars that they get from us. So it's a matter of the world, it's called the world reserve currency, but basically the world currency is the dollar. Oil is bought and sold only in dollars, unless you're buying it from Iran and they'll, they'll accept euros sometimes if the wind's blowing in the right direction. And, and the, the Russians would love to sell their uh, oil in rubles, but nobody wants their rubles and nobody has enough rubles to pay for it with, so they also buy and sell in dollars. So we have this export that we maintain quality control on called the dollar. How long will this last? Well, for Rome, it lasted about 800 years. And it didn't cause the collapse of Rome. Uh, the collapse of Rome caused the Roman denarius to lose value, not the other way around. So we've got a situation where the prime, the prime evidence we can present is one of the more stable economies in the world right now is the Japanese economy. Very little inflation, very stable. And they have a national debt that's 250% of their gross domestic product. And it hasn't had a negative effect in any way whatsoever. No, that's, and that's something to, to be aware of. We didn't 
tell them what the household net worth of the United States is. This doesn't involve all the corporate net worth because sometimes it's not held by households. But if we add it all together, it is significantly more than this. But it's $141 trillion is the net worth of the households in the United States. 141. When we talk about net worth, that's minus debt. And when we look at who owns the debt, a big chunk of the debt is owned by U.S. citizens. If we if we look at it's of uh, man, I could add it all up together. But the the Federal Reserve and the government uh, accounts that's like eleven trillion of our twenty eight trillion dollar debt. So when we look at it, we say, all right, is this dangerous at this moment? Almost any metric we apply to the debt of the United States at this moment, it looks healthy. That obviously could change if we crazy borrow into the future forever. Uh, so don't hear us saying, hey, the debt is healthy at this moment. It's it somehow imply that we're advocating for massive amounts of borrowing for everything into the future. What we are saying is this is not going to... It, under these circumstances, we don't see this leading to the decline of the United States as, as the power of the world. Um, if anything, it's the opposite in that the foreign holding of debt of the U.S. government is $7 trillion. And when you look at the world stage at how much money that is and where it came from, um, you're going to discover that that is a big investment in our well-being because they don't get paid back if they really get into war with us. Uh, Japan's the top holder. China's the second top holder foreign-wise. But uh, China's got a trillion dollars of our debt. Now, if we were to allow interest rates to rise dramatically, as they did in the late 70s and early 80s, before we had the controls on the situation we have today, right? it would have a negative effect because so much of the federal budget would go to pay interest. But one of the things that the Federal Reserve is in the business of doing is not allowing inflation and interest rates to rise real high. Yeah. So when, when we're kind of tying back into all the questions that we've had today have been bordering on um, inflation and supply chain and price changes, when things are hard to get, they get more expensive. As they get easier to get, they get less expensive. And as money is siphoned out of the system, people will have less money to pay for things. So it won't be money's no issue the companies will have to compete for that money to find the most efficient route to get the stuff to them that we see already what, happening. One of the unstated missions of the Federal Reserve, and it is unstated, it's there clearly because it supports the other the, the stated missions, is controlling the supply and demand of dollars. And they have proven that they can do a really, really, really good job of that. And they can keep interest rates, as, they can raise interest rates, they can lower, lower interest rates. It used to be that the buying of longer-term treasuries on the open market or the buying of other bonds on the open market was an extremely rare event for the Federal Reserve. Now they do it routinely. They buy and sell on the open market at longer uh, maturities than just the short-term rates. And they are the 800-pound gorilla. They have a tremendous ability to move the bond market. Uh, and as long as things don't get completely out of whack, now they can we get completely out of whack? Sure, we could get completely out of whack, but nothing, including the $3.5 trillion budget, would put things completely out of whack. No. Uh, the Federal Reserve could buy up that debt and it wouldn't even make a blip. So let's kind of lay out a perspective, though. Interest payments 
uh, earlier in this year. We don't have the most up-to-date figures. We're projected for, for 2021, interest payments on the debt of the U.S. government. We're projected mm-hmm. to be about $300 billion. That's a lot. They're obligated to pay the coupon rate. So as interest rates rise, that old debt that we're talking about the $300 billion on, that's not rising with it. It's any new debt that would be taken on would be at the higher interest rate. And that can raise the, the payment. Also, as old debt matures and is brought back up for, for reissuance, because basically if we are growing our debt over a long period of time, we're not paying it off. As it matures, we're replacing it with a new bond. That will increase the cost of interest payment for the federal budget. And that's something we just have to be aware of. It's something that needs to be calculated in. $300 billion is a lot of money. It's about 10%, a little under 10% of the budget. And as interest rates go up, that will go up too. So that's something to worry about if you plan on worrying. Otherwise, we need to look at how to raise revenue to pay for the spending that we want to do. And that means tax increases. Or we need to cut back on the big expenses, which are uh, things that nobody wants to cut like defense and medicare and social security who who's going to volunteer to start talking about cutting things that are kind of important for us all so that's the deal is that we've got to come to some kind of conclusion on what we're willing to spend into the future but well there's another there's another aspect to this when you buy stocks in your 401k or whatever when you buy mutual funds you are in essence creating debt. I know that sounds kind of backwards, but your money is out there someplace and you don't have access to it anymore unless you liquidate something and try to get it back. You're putting a risk factor in your life for a reason. It's similar to when you buy a house. You, you, you accumulate a tremendous amount of debt. Let's say you bought a $300,000 house and you don't make $300,000 a year. You just entered into and you, and you had a VA loan. Let's just lots of things in here and you don't make three hundred thousand dollars a year you just you just acquired a debt that is larger than your income and yet that's normal why because you consider that debt to be an investment it's a double-edged investment one the fact that you have the nice house will enable you to make money more effectively will enable your children to be better educated will enable for a lot of things to happen that otherwise wouldn't happen and secondly, you expect the price of that house to rise over the years and become more valuable as time goes by. A lot of the money that's being budgeted in that, for instance, in that $3.5 trillion budget that is so strongly objected to that's probably going to come down quite a lot before it passes, is investment money. Some of this is investment money in children. Some of it is investment money in child care. Some of it is investment money. That it, uh, not, not all of it's investment money. But much of it is money that there's is there's a lot of pork in there at. too. That, I mean, you can look at well, any budget bill, and there's you just gotta plug your nose and walk by all the pork and bacon because it's there. Don't get us wrong. There's a lot of it in there, but there's a lot of investment he, money in there too. Even the pork and bacon, in many cases, turns around and becomes something useful. For instance, let's, let me give you an example. And I can, can I you can, want, can I quick run in? Sure. The reason why we use pork when we talk about pork barrel spending is because the government subsidized the pork industry when that name for the the budget came up and it actually led to 
a large amount of tax revenue to the government when the pork industry got very profitable not long afterwards. So there's a question even about the word pork, pork barrel spending. Did the government have a place in investing in the pork industry when it was an established industry? It was just because the, they really wanted the government to give them money. Did they have a place to do it? Well, they had the votes. It's a democracy. That's what happens. Was it the best spending in the world? Maybe, maybe not. When you pay for something that has no long-term benefit, what's something that the government does that has no long-term benefit? Um, post office? No, it is a great long-term uh, that's benefit. That's a long-term benefit. Wait, let's see. The arm- Nope, the Army's got a long-term. So that's the problem. Yeah, there may be waste involved, but it's really hard to find something that the government is doing that doesn't provide a long-term benefit. That's hard. Let me give you an example. And I objected at the time, not to the to the project so much as the way it was presented. Uh, Representative Carter gave two speeches in, in one day, one in Temple where he was talking about cutting the budget, and the other one in Copper's Cove, where he was bragging that he earmarked a bunch of money to put the new big intersection that, by the way, led to nowhere at the time. But it led uh, to somewhere off, later. Off 190 in Copper's Cove and was really proud of that and made everybody happy. The fact is that that intersection, because that big interchange on the highway there at 190, spawned a bypass. And whether or not it was obvious needed at the time, it was considered, it was, it was labeled as pork barrel spending by some people at the time. It was earmarked, which is, which is pork. Yeah. But the point is it created a bypass around Copper's Cove that kept Copper's Cove from becoming log jammed, car jammed permanently with cars as the economy has grown. It actually created a growth in the economy. There are a lot of people that were saying when we put in the uh, 140, is it 140, the, the bypass that goes around Austin, the toll road, that that was a waste of money and it was a waste of effort and it was terrible and it was a terrible thing to do. Why not just drive through on I-35? Because it just went through the middle of nowhere. It and didn't are, go anywhere. We already paid for I-35. We were going to make a toll road that we have to pay for again. Why would we do that? So now you go drive down that place that used to run through nowhere and there are communities developing around it. There's Tesla putting a new plant in next to it. Uh, there's tremendous economic development and tax revenue for the state of Texas coming in off of this supposed boondoggle. So when the government borrows money and spends it on something that produces a long-term gain for the government and for society, that is a good use of money. And let me tell you, there's a big change going on right now in the way government borrows money. I don't know if you follow this or not. During the Trump administration, there was a conscious effort from the executive to keep borrowing short-term. Matter right. of fact, the Secretary of the Treasury and the President got into an argument over it. Keep it short-term so it doesn't look like we have long-term borrowing. And as a result, they were rolling it over very, very quickly. During the current administration, the borrowing has gone long-term. So when we borrow money now, we're taking it out to 20 and sometimes 30 years at these super low interest rates. And it's one of the fascinating things about the debt right now. The interest rate on the 20-year bond is well below what we expect anybody expects inflation to be over the next 20 years. So we're actually being paid money as a country to borrow money from somebody. As a business, as a business owner, if I was about to be building 
uh, an addition to our facility or a new manufacturing plant of some kind, I'm not expected to come up with that money out of my current revenue stream. I want to go into debt for that, but I really want that debt to be cheap. And if when I'm heading to the borrowing shop and I see that the borrowing shop is only going to charge me 1.57% for my loan, I'm going to take a lot of money on that. And that's what U.S. Treasury rates are. That's what they're being charged. And I want to make sure that that is clear. As most of the time, you'll hear us say, hey, borrowing can be good in certain circumstances, bad in other circumstances. Long-term borrowing at 1.5% for things that are going to build revenue in the future, not a big deal. It's just that's the quibble point. What's going to build revenue? Thank you very much for listening, if you have. If you haven't, then no thanks to you. Until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.